you have to make mistakes because that's the sort of edge of your seat drama that being in a band should be. But I understand why people have terrible drug problems and alcohol problems because a lot of the entertainment industry is finding out it's nothing like you thought it would be. I had my battles with record companies back in the 80s and, and won the, the right to make the records I wanted. I spent 10 years of my life with no money. Trying to get a record deal was so I was my own boss and I could do what I want. Because you're altering the DNA of everything you've been listening to. Altering it, bringing it up to date, modifying it and turning it into um, you know, a kind of higher art form. I mean, we're all expected to be videographers and influencers and all of this at the same time. And I'm not any of those. I'm a songwriter. For every Coldplay, there's 10 other Coldplays that all got signed in the same year. You know, yeah, there's a lot of broken dreams in the business. I was nowhere. You know, I had, I'd lost my record deal, massively in debt, and no obvious signs that I would ever be able to recover that, you know, because a career looked to be pretty much finished. I was terribly uh, ambitious, really, both in terms of getting on top of the pops, but also in terms of getting my vision to come true. There is no formula to having a hit record. It happens, and it's probably 60% luck, 30% talent, and 10% timing. Making a hit record is tough, but maintaining success is another skill entirely. On The Art of Longevity, we explore the artist's experience of the music business from the inside. I'm your host, Keith Jopling, the song sommelier. I want to find out what separates those artists and bands that have survived decades in the music business from all those who have fallen by the wayside. We follow a narrative inspired by a quote from Brett Anderson of Suede who has said that all successful artists have followed a similar career arc, like Stations of the Cross, for struggle, success, excess, disintegration, and if you're lucky, enlightenment. With insights and stories for music fans, aspiring musicians and creators, this is The Art of Longevity. The Art of Longevity is presented with Bowers & Wilkins, the revered British premium audio brand. Blamond are an English synth-pop band formed as a duo in London in 1979. They came to prominence in the early 80s, releasing four UK top 20 singles, Living on the Ceiling, Waves, Blind Vision and Don't Tell Me. They released three studio albums during that decade, Happy Families, Mange 2 and Believe You Me, all chart hits. The duo amicably broke up in 1986 but reformed in the late 2000s and since then, Neil Arthur alone has continued to perform under the Blamange name, releasing nine new studio albums, the latest of which is Private View. For this episode, my friend and Electronic Ears presenter Fenner Pearson hosts the conversation with Neil. This is episode two of season six with Blamange. Neil Arthur, Blamange, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on The Art of Longevity to discuss what has been now a long and interesting career. And I wanted to start off by talking a bit about your new album, Private View, uh, which I've been enjoying myself. And I was just wondering if you can tell me a bit about the process of writing and recording the album. And in particular, did you go back to how you were working before lockdown or has that had a kind of lasting impact on your way of doing things? 
Well, the process of recording, you know, writing and recording is what I start off with, you know, things start kind of like bubbling and fizzing around my head. And um, I, you know, wherever I am, I kind of end up uh, trying to stop and kind of go, oh, that's interesting what that person said or that sign or somewhere in a you know, as I'm walking around, I see something and it triggers a, a link, you know, kind of this thing about, I, I reckon lots of things are connected, aren't they? You know, so I kind of, they kind of fizz around my head for a bit. And once there's enough and they start colliding together and I end up, they make a kind of, they, they, they hold on to each other. <laughs> I either write those things down or, um, you know, if it's a, a melody or a rhythm or something, I kind of, use my uh, iphone and just literally just singing to it or i'll get my guitar and i'll i'll strum it out on that once those things have kind of been around a while some of them filter to the top and they need a bit more attention and some of them just sink away and i'm not quite sure what happens to them <laughs> they just go away you know <laughs> they just go away and never never come back then uh, i go into the studio i never go into the studio unless i've got an idea I don't sit in there looking at a load of flashing lights on synthesizers and staring at a, a screen of a computer. I just don't do it anymore unless I've got an idea. And then I start putting the bits and pieces down and seeing whether they make any, you know, well, <laughs> it's blamange, so whether they make sense or not is another matter. But, you know, uh, then, of course, some of them some of them go off from an area which is kind of like, I mean, maybe maybe kind of towards dance. Some of them kind of off towards a dance area that's a bit dark as well, and some yeah. of them go very very dark. I realise that. So, and they all get put into little cubby holes, waiting for more attention on the computer. Um, then I start using Logic. I use Logic and I use Ableton as my doors for um, taking these ideas onto the next stage. So I'll, I'll upload the files uh, that I've got on the form. Uh, or look at my notes and transfer those notes into the, either of those two um, sequences. And I use VST, a combination of VSTs and some synths yeah. uh, to get these ideas down. Once I'm happy with that, you know, sh should they be instrumentals, then I carry on and I sometimes finish them off. A lot of them end up on nil by mouth albums. If some of them are de developing lyrics, I have lyrics with them rather. I uh, once I'm happy with them, I send them to my manager Steve Nailings, and we have a chat about it. And I I end up with about 18, 20 songs, and then I send about twelve of them, maybe fourteen of them, to uh, Benj, and Benj digests them and as I listen to them, says what he thinks about them and what we might change. And then Benj has a period of time with these songs, where he. He, you know, he starts to kind of say, right, well, I'm going to replace that VST with the real deal. So he gets the Moog modular on that, or he wants to put real drums. So, for example, I've used um, uh, a, a Lin drum, like um, one of the, uh, you know, like the Sparkle drum machine from Maturia. I might have used that. Let's get the real Lin drum out and put that on it. And he does that, and he has a few weeks working on that or whatever he needs. And we talk a lot during that period and exchange files, and I may edit some of the arrangements because he'll send stuff back to me. And then Benji and I, we actually get together down at his studio, down at Mean Tune, Mean Tune in Cornwall, and uh, we spend 
whatever period of time it takes. We work really quick though. You know, we work very, very fast. It's, you know, it's kind of, it's not weeks, it's days. We make decisions really quickly about stuff. And a lot of that process then is, I've normally done all the vocals. We do backing vocals. I do my vocals in my own little uh, man cave when I'm doing the writing. And uh, I do backing vocals. And Benj and I will definitely spend quite a bit of time changing synths together and stuff like that. And eating orange food. We only have orange food at lunchtime. And uh, discussing it over a pint in the evening, maybe. What we've done during the day. And the process is, that's more or less it. And as for the last part of your question, lockdown, the difference in lockdown was that uh, I find myself, the way of dealing with it for me was actually to get more creative. So I ended up, I ended up writing more. <laughs> you know? And there was a hell of a lot to observe in a very, very different way. I'm kind of really into the minutiae, the bits in between the cracks. And in the cracks and the, the kind of like the mundane and the everyday. And I kind of love all that stuff and mixing it all up with kind of emotional feelings and stuff like this, uh, potential emotions, emotional feelings. And uh, in a way, lockdown, the, the creative process was one of my ways, luckily for me, of dealing with the very, very difficult situation the world was in. The only difference was that I couldn't get down to Benji's because of the restrictions as maybe as much as I would have liked to do. So we were exchanging files more rather than actually getting together. Fortunately for us, there were windows and we did manage to get to see each other in those in those windows and get on with the uh, the process of uh, recording and finishing, mixing the album. I mean, it's interesting you say about working with Benj. I mean, you've obviously done the two albums with him with the Fader project, which I guess is where you're both writing as opposed to just you doing the writing. And then you've also done the near future project with Jen Bird. Well, yeah, go on. So I'm going to say that, it's, that we've got three uh, Fader albums now. Uh, so there's um, First Light, In Shadow, and Quartz. Okay, Quartz is the one I haven't got yet. Okay. We're on to our fourth uh, now. I'll tell you about, I can tell you about the process because it's very different. And of course, yeah, with Jez Burnouts as well, Jez and I have only released one album, Near Future, but they're. We've done the second album. Uh, we just need to mix it. And that is a matter of just figuring out time and fitting it in with all the other projects, which I can go on to talk about later because there's yeah, other stuff. So, yeah. The fader thing is I describe what happens with Blamange. So Blamange starts with me. I write these songs and then I take them to Benj. You know, Benj does a massive, I mean, it's really, really important what Benj does. You know, it's just, it's just, he's a, he's a master of understanding the technology we're working with. And he's a fantastic musician uh, as well. So it's just, you know, he's so inventive and I, I absolutely love working with him. It's, we have a great time working together. Fundamentally, Blumange starts with me. So I suppose that kind of gives it its, um, it's DNA, DNA equivalent to musical DNA thing. With the with Fader and that whole project, everything starts with Benj. Oh, okay. So that gives its own unique starting point. Yeah. So it all starts. He does effectively, apart from kind of some, you know, I, mean, I do put little bits of uh, synths here and there, and of course we talk about arrangements and the sounds we're using and kind of melodies. But it starts with Benj, and he writes. Uh, instrumental pieces initially and sends them to me 
and I don't have any input until that point, until he's happy with the the musical parts that he's, he's sending me. I digest those and then write lyrics and melodies. And then we have another go backwards and forwards, sending files. Uh, we transfer, for example, you know, we do further work in our respective studios, you know, as I say, and then we get together and mix it. But it, it, the crucial difference is the starting point. And that's what, that's what makes the two, two things, so, I feel, so different. The Art of Longevity is presented with Bowers & Wilkins, the revered British premium audio brand. Bowers & Wilkins makes some of the world's finest audio products, from the iconic 800 series loudspeakers, trusted by Abbey Road Studios for over 40 years, to the flagship PX8 wireless headphones. This is music as the artist intended you to hear it. Do you enjoy working in, I mean, obviously you were working with Stephen originally, and now you're working with Benj and with, with Jez as well. I mean, are you a natural collaborator? Is that your preferred way of working? I'm happy um, either way. I think I, I do prefer to collaborate, but I'm also, when I do the instrumental albums, uh, and I think the discipline comes from the film um, and TV music I did in that period in between Blum Orange stopping and it's starting again, you know, Blamange 2, the discipline of doing uh, film and TV music, like incidental stuff. I'm very happy working on my own as well, you know, it's uh, doing the instrumental stuff, but I really love collaborating. I really enjoy it. And particularly with, you know, I'm lucky enough to work with Benj and, for, you know, for example, we mentioned Jez uh, Bernholz as well. You know, how lucky, how lucky am I, you know, to get to work with them. And, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, you know. absolutely. So I mean, that, that period sort of between Blamange 1 and Blamange 2, which was about 25 years, wasn't it? Because, I mean, one thing we haven't mentioned yet, I mean, you are phenomenally prolific. I mean, I, by my calculation, I think you've done 12 albums as Blamange since 2015. What I thought was two with Ben, which is actually three, and then the one with Jez as well. You say you've got other stuff in the pipeline. I mean, yeah. have you always been that prolific? Well, obviously, just during that 25 years, it was in, you, know, you were just doing stuff that I wasn't necessarily seeing. Have you just always had that strong surging creativity? I suppose the, uh, the answer to that is uh, yes, um, but I wasn't really, I wasn't really aware of it until the opportunity came to actually release material as and when we wanted to so you know in the 80s it well, it didn't work like that you know because we were with a label and it had to be timed and you had to do it at certain times you had to go into studios it was a very very different process you know and uh, i mentioned you know a few minutes ago about working on film and you have to work really quick you have to work really fast sometimes and Without knowing it, I suppose, over a period of time, I learned to kind of make decisions quickly about, uh, you know, what we needed and what you don't need. And I, I also learned to let go that, it, you know, there's always a, there's always going to be another song. So, you know, why spend two weeks sorting out a snare drum? You know? Yeah, 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 absolutely. At any given time, you sort of intimated earlier that you you kind of wait till you've got enough ideas and, you, and then you'll go and start working on an album and that also the instrumental stuff, you kind of let that, for want of a better word, let that kind of pile up. And when you've got enough, you put out a nil by mouth album, of which there's now been five. Do you have a kind of plan? Do you know what you're doing? Or do you just do you just work that kind of instinctive way as the material kind of accumulates? There's a rough plan that, you know, so 
that we kind of work out well yeah let's try and get an album out next year but i in general i just start writing as soon as i finish the last one so i'm already writing we've got just got private view out but i'm already writing for what will be the next album yeah fantastic and i'm putting together instrumentals as well they they don't all start with lyrics they some of them start off you know it's just the music and they might that's how they may remain but in terms of a plan we have to have a a loose plan it's got to be flexible but there are other projects coming up next year yeah i I think you know stuff like tours you must have to arrange that sometime in advance to get those organized i mean do, do you actually tour for every album so you know in terms of plans there there won't be one next year but there will be one the following year that's how it is this time but you know it could well be that after that there'll be one every year for a while and we'll just have to see but do a tour every album well obviously because of the pandemic we weren't able to the tour that was that i managed to get on last autumn was initially booked to do uh in the spring of 2020 we were going to do mindset that was going to be the tour but unfortunately um as everyone you know in the world's very aware uh, you know something major came along and stopped us stopped lots of things in their tracks and uh so i ended up with benj doing a remixed album of uh, we did expanding mindset i had a collection of songs that hadn't made it onto uh, various albums before that for different reasons and a collection of new songs which i thought well I'll, we'll put volume one waiting rooms volume one out so i did that in lockdown um another nil by mouth album and then uh the fader album and and benj mixes the albums you know we co-produce but he mixes the albums and he's just phenomenal he works so fast but he's really really good at making decisions and honing in on stuff that frankly i miss i really do you know because it's just not my i admit it it's not my area it's just like oh my goodness yeah i didn't i didn't thought of that you know and it's like wow so like when we did commercial break so we got that one out so when by the time we got to um the autumn last year it was almost like well it's a commercial break uh tour you know <laughs> that's what it was because all, all all that all those albums have been and gone so it, it, we had to rearrange the uh, the tour about four times by the time we got out it had moved on from mindset right through all the other albums to to uh, commercial break i mean you always when i want to see you playing live you always look like you're enjoying yourself is, is touring something that you do enjoy uh, i love the um the performances um i really enjoy doing that i'm nervous about it of course you know and if it wasn't it would be time to probably stop that's just how i am but yeah i really enjoy the performances i don't like touring i mean there's nothing nice about the repetitiveness of you know the hotels and the miles on the road and the kind of you know endless traffic comes you know (laughs) and endless traffic jams they're seemingly endless but the gigs yeah i really i really enjoy and i am humbled by the the people who you know decide to come and see us it's quite quite something that i don't take i don't take that for granted at all yeah sure and i mean now you've got you mean you have got this phenomenal body of work i mean how i mean how do you go about deciding what goes on the set list and what doesn't well yeah it's quite difficult at times and there's always you know you do an hour and 40 minutes and uh there's always somebody at the end said uh, oh why didn't you do <laughs> <You're> going, oh. <laughs> all right okay 
there's a lot of songs, aren't there? You know, cast to have a flow, doesn't it? And we take a certain amount of songs into rehearsal. And I think there were probably about four songs that we did actually get right up to speed in rehearsal and they haven't ended up in the set. So, but I think we're still doing something like, I don't know, uh, there must be 20 songs. I don't know how many there are in the set without kind of listing it up, without seeing a list. I don't know. Yeah. And I, I saw you, uh, I can't remember when it was now, but I saw you in Manchester with David Rhodes playing with you. Was that kind of different set list then? Because you're sort of going, right, I've got a guitarist on stage. Yeah, but we can adapt the songs that, uh, you know, if they've had guitar on the album, it doesn't necessarily mean need to be, uh, if David's not with us, uh, be there when we're playing live. You know, you can make them into a, you can make it work, we've found, you know, by stripping things down or kind of having a synth do certain parts that the guitar may do. Thanks for listening to The Art of Longevity. I hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. Please take a moment to rate the show, leave a review on Apple Podcasts if that's where you listen, and do spread the word. Also, you can sign up via the Song Sommelier webpage for our newsletter, artwork, and much more. Back to the conversation. Let's get on to the kind of longevity um, part of this and sort of go back to, to when you started out, when you and Stephen did the uh, Irene and Mavis EP, which is, I mean... That's a very different, that's quite an anarchic sound on that EP. I mean, how did, how did that come about? Well, uh, Stephen and I had uh, started doing doing music maybe a couple of years before that and uh, it came out. Initially, it was just, we just made noises, you know, I mean, really, it was just a lot of noises and experimentation. And uh, I suppose reflecting on, reflecting on the things that we really like listening to you know so from uh not that we could ever hope to sound like them but but from um you know the obvious references you know the electronic stuff so a lot of the german uh, motoric sounds that we kind of were listening to and the kind of diy aspect of uh, punk and post-punk with bands like perubu uh the young marble giants this heat mm-hmm. You know, going to see bands like Clock DVA and Cabri Voltaire, they all had a massive influence on us. And of course, you know, the craft work and Eno and stuff like that. And we just set about doing this kind of DIY noise making session. And eventually we ended up with a few pieces that sounded like almost like songs. <laughs> and uh, and a friend of ours got a, a tax rebate, you know, a rare, uh, yeah, a, a rarity. He uh, he gave us uh, some money. David Hill gave us some money to make a thousand, get a thousand records pressed, and that became Iron and Mavis. I did the front cover. Stephen did the back. You know, because we both, I was doing illustration, and Stephen was a graphic designer. So we, between us, we cobbled that together. I mean, my attitude towards doing the music is, is no different to doing exactly the same. I, mean, I, do, I just I just set off and sometimes you just follow your nose and see where it where it takes you, you know. And then from there, you were on the Some Bizarre album, which I mean, was just a little compilation, was it? But actually, I think it was the first time Depeche Mode were recorded, the Ver were on there. I mean, quite an extraordinary artefact in hindsight. And how did you get onto that? Well, Steve-O picked up uh, one of the 25 copies that uh, Rough Trade took and uh, got in touch with us 
And so we met up with Steve-O and <laughs> quite a character to say the least. Yeah. And uh, he said, you know, do you want to put a song on that? So we decided we'd put Sad Day on there, which we recorded by that time. And, uh, you know, it seemed to kind of capture people's, certain people's imagination. So, you know, it led to us, I suppose, ultimately get us getting a deal, you know. And that, by, I mean, by the time Happy Families came out, which obviously Sad Day was on 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 that album as well. But I mean, that's you've moved on to quite a a different. I mean, still a very exciting kind of left field and inventive sound, but not as I use the word anarchic, not as anarchic as Irene and Mavis. I mean, no. what, what had changed in your songwriting approach between that first EP and then the first album? Well, I, I think. You know, we'd 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 toured quite a bit by that time. You know, we'd we'd had the experience of uh, you know going on tour with Depeche Mode. Uh, we played with Grace Jones at Drury Lane, all before we had a deal, and been on tour with Japan. And that's where we met David Rhodes because he was um, standing in as guitarist for Japan. I suppose the uh, you start fine tuning things. You get, you know, you refine stuff and you kind of learn a bit more about the technology that's available. And then, of course, we ended up working with an amazing producer, Mike Howlett. So, you know, uh, and Mike was sensational. I mean, a really brilliant, bloody brilliant uh, producer for us. And he really, really helped us kind of understand what was possible, with, you know, with the, with the with the songs we had. Great producer. Yeah. So you did th- you did those three albums and then how did you make that move across into the TV and film work? How did that that come about? Oh, well, you know, it sounds like it was uh, it was just really it was a bit of luck actually because funny enough we'd been offered a few films when we were when, you know working as Blamange and we did send us up to Pinewood to watch a film in a kind of right. one of those places where you see people with cigars watching, you know watching a kind of an early cut of a film. And I remember going up to see one with Burt, Burt Reynolds in it. And they were after, you know, it was offered to us to do the music. And I think Stephen and I were probably a little bit naive and we, we actually turned it down. We kind of said, no, I don't want to do it. And it really, I, I've got to say, I should have said yes. <laughs> I should have said, yeah, I'll have a go at that. But I think we're probably, we were protecting ourselves, like thinking, shit, we don't really know what's going on here. How are we going to deal with that? You know? Yeah. And, uh, and of course, being young, you're too frightened to ask sometimes because you think you know it all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the one thing I'm certain of now is that I don't know. And I'm quite happy about that. So what, what led to you guys then? I think it was 2011, wasn't it? When you, when you did Blankburn. I mean, what, what led to you going, it's time for another Blamange album? Well, yes, I'll I just finish on the film thing. I mean, I, that, just before I, you know, like Steve, I decided that I didn't want to do Blamange anymore. And it was just getting a bit, when you, there's just two of you in the project, it's, it's fantastic. But Steve and I, are, we're like chalk and cheese. And when that's uh, creative, you know, when you, it's fantastic, you know, if, you, if it's in the right direction. But if there's a kind of a sense of, um, destructiveness in there is quite easy to kind of you know it can get kind of slightly out of control without going into all the detail and i think um i said to steven i just i'm just really not enjoying this this is not what we set off to do it doesn't seem like it should blamon should have always been fun it should have been 
it, you know, it was always like, even the fact that we call ourselves Plumonge was just like, you know, it's throwaway. It doesn't matter. I mean, it's just like, don't take yourself too bloody seriously, you know? And I think it got to the point where the friendship was in danger of being destroyed by the, by Blamange, by the fact that we were Blamange and having to, and doing this music. Yeah. So we decided to stop it and it saved a friendship, which is far more important. And I was lucky enough, not immediately, but I was lucky enough to, um, because I turned another film, I can remember now, Vince Clark contacted me and asked me whether I'd be interested in doing this film. I think he was very busy with some some film music himself, and I had expressed an interest in doing it, and I was offered this opportunity. And again, stupidly, I just said, you know what, no, I don't really fancy it. <laughs> just, what are you doing now? Looking back, what am I doing? This is silly, you know? So. Anyway, so the, the next one that came along was via a director friend of mine who was uh, making his first TV documentary, and it was called Changing of the Guard, and it was about the Czech Republic, well, then the Czech secret police, Czechoslo- Czechoslovakian secret police. And uh, I, along with a friend, Graham, Graham Henderson, did the, did the music for it. And then I started getting offered more stuff and Graham did as well but we we either sometimes work together sometimes work separately and um and I really enjoyed it I particularly enjoyed the fact that I didn't have to do interviews um, no don't take that the wrong way <laughs> I didn't have to have my I didn't have to have my photograph taken I didn't have to make a video and um when I handed it in that's it it's just done and I could walk away and didn't have to tour it or anything like that it's everything that Blumange wasn't but yeah I was still being creative <laughs> So I was happy doing that for a period of time, and it was up and down. It was the work wasn't always there. I'm quite happy to say that you know it's that you know it was. There were times when it was like, you know, like well, okay, well, this um, somebody need the house, the house decorating. I'll go and decorate the house for them, you know, for a mate or whatever, you know. Uh, there's not many musicians who can't decorate. <laughs> so if they admit it to you, you know, I'm, I'm telling you that. And then Stephen and I obviously were in, always kept in touch, um, and we'd talked about doing stuff and never really wanted to and then i wrote a lot of songs when i was still living in london that i thought these might be kind of blamange songs if we ever did anything together again and i played them to steven steven really liked them and so we got together and we finished the songs and did some more together wrote some more together and and that ultimately became blank burn right in 2011 and I was quite keen to, uh, you know, kind of continue that. But Stevens, so I knew I was good. You know, it, there was a tour offered and stuff like that. But it was quite apparent whilst we were doing that that Stevens' health was not going to, and he, he was not going to be able to do that kind of thing. And uh, his health was far more important than any music making. And he, he gave me a kick up the proverbial, and I got on with it. And I've continued getting on with it really. The Art of Longevity is brought to you by the Song Sommelier, that's me, working with Project Melody and Audio Culture. It's recorded at The Cube, London's first member studio for content creators. Currently based in West London, Cube will be opening a second site in Canary Wharf in January 2023. Our cover art is by Mick Clark, and original music for the podcast is by the neoclassical composer and artist Andrew James Johnson. From what you're saying, you know, you and Stephen went into doing Irene, Irene and Mavis because you were big music fans. I mean, did you did you come from a musical background? When did you first pick up an instrument? My dad played the accordion, 
So there was music around, although my mum would say a gentleman is a man who owns an accordion and doesn't play it. But anyway, <laughs> so but he, he used to nip down to my grands and play it down there in, the, in their front room, or he played in our front room and sometimes get it out at birthdays and Christmas and things like that, you know, to play and entertain us doing some, you know, the... Who was it who wrote the Hungarian dances? Vojak, is it? Uh, I think. And they, you know, all that stuff on the accordion. And um, he did some really lovely Fat Swallow songs and stuff like that. So we'd have music around. We used to really love listening to music. So, you know, there was music around the house and I was brought up on Johnny Cash and Fat Swallow, really. And I love Johnny Cash. I still absolutely love both of them, actually. Amazing musicians. And then, you know, it moved on to pop stuff. And I've got an older sister who was into, uh, you know, kind of music in the 60s and uh, and then got into soul music. There was always music going on. In terms of picking up an instrument, yeah, there was a guitar around and stuff like that. Like a lot of people have a crappy old guitar in their house or something, you know. And I was always interested in making noises, like taking the front off my grand's piano and, you know, kind of, on, you know, the bit down at the bottom where you take the front off, you can kind of take a, a spoon and, or whatever and just run it down a stick and rub it down the kind of strings. If one of my mates had a recorder, you know, something that I remember a friend, Stephen, had a, like a tape recorder that you could record, get mics and record, and we were always kind of faffing around with noises and stuff like that. But... Uh, my love was art. I always wanted to be, um, I always wanted to go to art school uh, from when I can, as soon, from when I can really remember, I, I, that was the thing. I'm dyslexic, so I struggle with kind of uh, spelling and reading uh, initially. But the one thing I could do, I could draw and I could express myself in that way. So I listened to music, but I didn't really think I was ever going to be a musician until I went to art college and realized that in actual fact you could express yourself and didn't have to be you couldn't you didn't even have to play anything you know once punk had come along in that very short period that that existed the the difference it made in our attitude you know no you don't need to play three keyboards at once and have a cape on you can just kind of like make a noise on a crappy old guitar it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks if you're enjoying it let's see you know see where we go Back to that bit about you doing the, doing the art and the creativity. I mean, I've, I've really enjoyed the last album covers for the Blamange releases. I mean, you design those yourself, don't you? Yeah, I, I do. Um, uh, kind of start the the designs kind of come from me, uh, and then um, they are tidied up no end by in recent years uh, Paul Agar, who's fantastic, so great great graf- graphic designer, and. Just going back to the idea of sort of having a, a musical household. I mean, uh, I mean, I know your son Joe records as Kincaid, doesn't he? Have, and you've done a bit of work together with him, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. And there's going to be some more in the future. Joe and I, I were lucky enough to be invited to go on tour with Creepshow. Yeah, I saw you. Yeah, it was fantastic. And that was my possibly my proudest moment for me in music it was the first night when I stood on stage with Joe in Liverpool, and um, it still makes me fill up a bit when I think about it now because it was an amazing time I was very very proud to stand on the same stage as my son amazing moment wonderful I mean I, I mean I sort of see via social media and stuff you sort of you know you obviously well obviously you know Benj and the guys from Creep Show and and is that quite a kind of community that you're involved with or is that just people you know of because you're all musicians 
Well, I think it's it's a bit of a family via my our managers. We we share the same manager, and having met John on that tour, you know, I now consider him a friend. And uh, I didn't know John before then. Oh, I knew obviously I knew his music, but um, and the fact that he's a Blumange, he likes Blumange, and <laughs> he's a fan of Blumange is is quite quite something to me, like me. Yeah, incredible. <laughs> yeah. That must be really rewarding, actually. So, I mean, you're just on the go creatively all the time. Is there anything else you get up to, or is that is that just what you, on a regular day, is that what you're what you're focused on? No, I said I don't go in the studio unless I've got an idea. So my brain's ticking over, and I'm quite happy doing a bit of DIY or you know, <laughs> sorting the stuff out like everybody else has to do. You know. Um, and do you still listen to a lot of music? I mean, who? I mean, who? Who are you listening to at the moment? Um, yeah, I do listen to music. I listen to, uh, you know, a, a large array. I mean, one of my favourite albums at the moment is by an artist called uh, Low Altitude from uh, Manchester. And uh, there's an album called Wave. And I absolutely I absolutely love that. It's really absolutely incredibly beautiful, beautiful album. But I listen to lots of different stuff, you know, from Still listen to Cassia Tone for the Painfully Alone, and you know I love Magnetic Fields, Ed Dowie, um, Lucretia Dahl. You know I, do, I listen to lots and lots of different stuff. Uh, yeah. You know, and do you go and see much live music? Um, well, no. I'm trying to think what I went to last. I went to see Jarvis Cocker talking last night, but he, did, he didn't do any singing. Um, I'm trying to think who I went to see last. Well, I'll tell you what, I saw Rodney Cromwell because um, he was supporting us. So I went out to watch Rodney <laughs> and uh, Alice Hubble uh, the week before. I watched Alice. Yes. So just what you mentioned earlier, the sort of the projects you've got lined up at the moment. So, I mean, what, what does the next 18 months look like for you in terms of projects that you've got on and albums that you'll be putting out? Okay, well, I've been working with uh, my good friend Finley Shakespeare, who's uh, been on tour with us a number of times. Well, a number of years ago, Liam Hutton, who drums with Blumange and drums with many, many people, and I started an album. I think we started in about 2015. We started writing some music together, and that's uh, then we more recently asked Finley to get involved. And we've finished the project now, and the project is called Remainder, The Remainder, and the album is called Even Song, and that's going to come out next year, and we're hoping to be able to do a few live dates with that as well. And I've been working for a number of years with uh, Vince Clark on an album, uh, an album of covers, and in the more recent times, Ben just got involved in that as well. And that is all done apart from we just need to mix it so i don't know when that one's coming out but it is certainly on the list to be finished as soon as i've got a second album uh, that jez and i have done for near future uh and beyond that as i said you know i'm lucky enough to have re-signed to london records and we're going to release a second album in 2024 there'll be announcements about that next year and I've got a load of festivals. Apparently. Oh, are you? Where, where, which festivals are you doing? Um, oh my goodness, you caught me out of there. I'll have to. I'm not, I haven't got an iCal in front of me. Just selfishly, are you doing Blue Dot? Because that's one that I always go to. We're not at the moment. I would love Blumange to be asked to do Blue Dot. I'd absolutely love to do it. Whether it's Blumange or Fader, because yeah, Fader have never played live, and yeah, I'd love to do that. But 
Yes, and um, if you're listening, Blue Dot, please invite me. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to play Blue Dot. Then I can go and see all the other artists as well. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great, great festival. But Neil, thank you so much for you. It's been an absolute joy talking to you, and oh, you know, nice. you're a phenomenal artist to say. I really, really enjoy your work. So um, no kind, and hopefully I'll uh, be seeing you or seeing you playing live at the uh, at the Lead Mill soon as well. So I'm looking forward to that. Oh my goodness, what an evening that's going to be! We've because you know Mal's playing. With yeah, us. I saw. Uh, yeah. My goodness, shouldn't it be us supporting Mal in Sheffield? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> At least, you know, blimey. What an evening. I'll tell you if, you, if people are coming to that, please, please come along early because you are in for an absolute storming, storming treat. Mal and Benj performing Mal's music. Benj is playing with him. It'll be just fantastic, that. And then you've got us afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, listen, enjoy the rest of your tour. I look forward to the records next year. And Neil Arthur, thank you very much indeed. You're absolutely welcome.